This podcast is sponsored by Palmer's, the UK's number one cocoa butter brand. Hello, hello, hello. And we are back with another series. I can't believe it's been a year. The time just flies by. I think it's actually been over a year. Wow. It's crazy. But we are back with another series, to be precise, series three of Black Women Rising, the Untold Cancer Stories. And this season, we have decided to bring you something a little different. In the previous series, our focus was more on getting the ladies' stories out there. But for this series, we have switched it up a bit and we'll be sitting down and talking to the professionals to get much-needed important information out there. And just to reintroduce myself, for those who don't know me, I'm Charlotte Kraut. I host a podcast and produce a podcast for Black Women Rising and I host their IG Lives as well. I'm also a cancer survivor. I had cancer when I was 17. I lived for wrestling lymphoma stage 3. I'm now 12 years cancer free. And yeah, I do a lot of stuff within like Black Women Rising, like just helping with things like the support group and stuff like that. So I'm just grateful to be given this opportunity to speak to so many amazing people. So I love that. Our first guest this week is Dr. Anisha Patel, who is an NHS GP, bowel cancer survivor, speaker, raises awareness about cancer and educates people regarding health. Wow, Anisha, so grateful you could join us and bless us this series as our first guest. How are you? Oh, hi, Charlotte. Thank you so much for asking me to come on to the podcast. Yeah, I'm doing really well, thank you. Um, Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to having this chat today. Oh, great. Thank you so much. And let's just jump right into it. How long have you been a GP and how would you best explain your role? Yeah, so interestingly, I've been a doctor since 2002, but I've only turned to general practice for the last 10 years. So I've had a bit of a career change. Used to work in hospital medicine, respiratory specialist, and now I'm a GP uh, with an interest in women's health, family planning and, and respiratory sort of chest medicine. Um, and a GP's job, yeah, we've got loads of hats that we kind of wear, as you like, from the sort of treatment of all sort of common medical yeah. conditions and the family yeah. doctor and referring where appropriate and to specialists, almost like a gatekeeper, to then health promotion and opportunistic sort of health promotion, disease prevention, screening like survival screening and we manage chronic diseases um and as i've mentioned already we do a lot of the women's health and family planning in-house wow it sounds like it's quite an intense like role with like so many hats yeah no it is but you know actually that's what i love about it is the variety um i always describe it like a box of chocolates every day is something different every patient's something different and you know you never know what you're gonna get so can you take us through your journey from those symptoms to diagnosis? Yes, yeah, so I was diagnosed September 2018 um, with stage 3B advanced bowel cancer, um, and it was actually more specifically rectal cancer. If I go back from there, um, I'd say that in the January 2018 that year, I'd been experiencing 
more tiredness than usual. Like I'm a busy mum, I've got two young kids, um, a husband that works a lot. I've become a partner in my GP practice. So I thought, you know, there there are reasons why I could be tired, but this is a bit more than usual. And I saw my GP, I went and had blood tests um, and actually they were all normal. What sort of carried on from there was I started to experience what I, in my head, thought were IBS symptoms, so irritable bowel syndrome symptoms. So I was getting a bit more constipated. I was going to the toilet more frequently and feeling like I wasn't emptying out properly. Um, And then I'd had piles during childbirth, and I felt that because I was constipated, I was getting blood on the tissue because I was straining. So in my own head, I was sort of like, you know, this is, I've got, you know, lots going on in my life. Um, stresses and strains. Um, this is probably a bit of irritable bowel syndrome. And I've just had blood tests. They're all fine um, and carried on. But as the months went by, the symptoms got worse and worse. And in July, I actually spoke to my husband, who ironically is the director of the Bowel Cancer Screening Service for Southwest oh, wow. London. And oh, wow. so I sort of said to him, just having these symptoms, you know, I think it's this. And he said, you know, you're you're probably right. But but if you're still bleeding, you do need to be checked out. So go and see your GP. So off I went and had some more blood tests. And she said, look, we'll treat you for the constipation and piles. But if you if you do have symptoms that carry on, we are going to refer you. So she was very clear and that was great. And she'd examined yeah. me. Um, yeah. And I went off for my summer holidays with the children. And then in August, it it really was horrendous. My symptoms got better initially with the treatment she'd given me, but then it was frank blood and it was explosive poos and I was waking in the night to go to the toilet and I felt like there was pain in my bum, for want of a better word at times. And I'd woken up in the middle of the night with two excruciating episodes of really bad tummy pain, but again thought, you know, constipation can really, you know, cause bad tummy ache at times. Um, And then it was on holiday in Italy that I thought, there's something wrong. I've got to do something yeah. back. And when I got yeah. back, I actually showed my husband what was now coming out into the toilet. And he was like, you, you need to get checked. And so I went back to the GP and was referred for an urgent, um, down the urgent cancer pathway. I saw the consultant surgeon who thought, this is probably IBS and piles, like you said, but we will check it out because now I'd become okay. anemic. And okay. what I think he hadn't clocked was I actually wasn't having periods. So a lot of people assume you're getting anemic because you're having yeah. periods. Yeah. But actually, I had a coil in, so I wasn't having periods. So I was getting anemic because I was getting blood loss from my guts because of the cancer. And when I went and had my colonoscopy, he was almost ready there to sort of manage my piles. Uh, if in case he found them, he, he said he'd treat them there and then. But actually, he also got the shock of his life when he saw a five centimetre tumour, just as he put his camera into my back passage, into my rectum, there was the tumour sitting there. Oh, wow. How long was it from when you first got the symptoms to when you actually had the camera put in, they found the tumour? What was the period of time you was kind of going through all of that? I think probably eight months. Um, And no one will know ever, you know, if I'd gone earlier where it would be, you know, my... I've spoken to my husband about this and uh, and this probably started as a polyp many, many yeah. years ago that over time yeah. has become cancerous, but was obviously making me feel unwell enough to to, to be having those symptoms. And um, as a result, I ended up having two major surgeries and I've had a stoma, okay. Um, okay. which has now been reversed. 
Um, and I had three months of chemotherapy, which was pretty grueling, um, and then was in, said to be in remission at the end of February 2019. Yeah, uh, been in remission. Love that. Absolutely, Love that. and I've, I'm now three years and counting, so I've got more scans and colonoscopies coming up, but at the minute I am cancer-free. Yeah, that's great. amazing. Um, for those who don't know what a stoma is, can you just explain that, please? Yeah, sure. So a stoma is a bag that collects your poo from an out from your bowel that's let out into your stomach so you've got a little opening of your bowel that pokes out through your stomach the bag's placed on top and that collects your poo so you empty the poo out from your bag and um, the reason they do this some people it's temporary like myself is to allow the join of the bowel to heal where they've cut the cancer out they plumb the two bits of bowel back together but it needs time yeah. to heal um, yeah. so a stoma allows this process to happen um, and so you basically pass poo into this bag in the meantime. And some people need this permanently, depending on where their cancer is found. Thank you for explaining that. What was it like being a patient when obviously you're so used to being a doctor? And do you know what? When you said a moment ago that you went to your doctor, I don't know why in my head I was thinking, oh, doctors have doctors too. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so true isn't it it's like oh a doctor needs to go and see their doctor and I I think what I did feel was it felt that I was on the wrong side of the consulting yeah. table so when this all yeah. started I just it just didn't feel comfortable at all like I've had children I have had other things in the NHS um, and it never it never fills me with joy being on the yeah. other side um, yeah. because I think for me the biggest thing psychologically was that loss of control yeah. I didn't yeah. feel in control. Whereas when I'm making decisions with my patients, it's a joint decision and I'm helping lead the consultation and, you know, make decisions together. But I felt like I just didn't have that control. Um, and I knew that my husband also had so much knowledge that he knew in specialist terms at every phase what would be coming yeah. next. And I yeah. almost didn't want to know, even though in my heart I knew what this would probably entail um, I just felt I almost had too much information in terms of statistics yeah. and, yeah. you know, the type of bowel cancer I had and the stage it was at, I was remembering statistics from sort of 15, 20 years um, ago of when okay. actually 50% of people would actually die with the type of cancer and the stage okay. that I was at. So it was really, it filled me with even more fear um, but I also knew the process. So there was that sort of comfort as well. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely been a double-edged sword, I'd say. I hear that. I have also been both, had both the experience of being a doctor and a patient. Would you say there are any, like, prominent questions that you would kind of say to people to ask your doctor? It depends what you're talking about in terms of where, at what point you're going to see your doctor. But I would definitely think about and write down questions related to a diagnosis that you might get that you're not sure about, um, what it is, how this would affect you, um, questions regarding the test, what will they involve, what will you need, and questions related to treatment. So what are your options? Yeah. What are the options? What are the side effects? How long will I have to take this treatment for or be on it? Any other options? Any long-term complications? And where can I get support and help from? Where can I be signposted? 
because obviously your time with your your own doctor is often yeah. short. You, you often, yeah. I found that I needed a lot more support than just the little appointments that I was getting here and there. And I understand why they have to do it. There's so many people. And also it was, you know, questions for me was, I had cancer young. Will my children be affected? Like what, what testing am I going to have? So things like that. Um, so all of these things are things to consider and think about. Because I know often when patients get into the consultation room, they sometimes freeze because it's a big deal for a lot of yeah. patients. And so sometimes yeah. if you've actually got these things written down, you then don't forget because what you don't want to do is walk out the room and then think, oh, I wish I'd yeah. asked that. Yeah. And then that play on your mind. It's so true. I remember when I was going through treatment and every time I, like, the doctor come, I had this long list, but my mind would just go blank. And then I was like, right, I need to start writing things down. I go in there with my long list. I'm like, sorry, I've got this long list, but I just need to make sure that I leave here, like, with some answers and clarity and stuff. So, yeah, that's a great um, tip. Yeah, it's just to put your mind at rest and to make sure that, you know, you just, no stones are left yeah. unturned and you, you've got the yeah, information that you need. Um, do you have any tips about what to bring with you to inpatient appointments? Yeah, so I... If you've been invited, obviously, for an inpatient sort of stay in hospital, always check the letter that you've been sent because often there's specific instructions on there. So what to bring to hospital, whether you need to fast and not or, or to drink just water. Um, and it really outlines any specific. So it's really important. And bring that letter with you, because sometimes when you get to the hospital, you don't know where you're going. Your mind goes yeah. blank. Um, yeah. I always used to take someone with me for support. That was really difficult, clearly, in COVID yeah. times. Um, yeah. But taking someone for support as an extra set of ears, even to those outpatient appointments, I used to do that and someone used to scribe for me because I just felt, A, because of treatment, I had sort of brain fog from the chemo and B, it was so yeah. overwhelming. And yeah. so I think that's always useful. And it's good to take all your medications with you, a list of them, any herbal or alternative medications you've been taking, any of the over-the-counter supplements or medications, everything's really important to take. And a list of any allergies, as well as any list of symptoms or questions that you want to relay with the team. Thank you very much. My next question was going to be about how would you advise people to prepare for appointments, but I think you've literally just covered it um, in a nutshell with that. Absolutely. I think what I'd like to say, though, is is how you prepare for your GP's okay. appointment, because I think okay. that's something that's really, um, you know, you've got 10 minutes and I think it's really important to use that time yeah. well. Um, yeah. And often we get patients coming in and then they don't know where to start or they've got a big list or they don't get across what they want to say in the time. And so I just wanted to give a little bit of advice how to, I guess, best prepare yourself for one of, for a GP yeah. appointment. Um, for example, if you're worried about bleeding from your bottom, um, how, how would you go about doing it? And I think the first thing to say is be, be really realistic. You know, the GP's got 10 minutes. And if you've got a whole list of things that you want to talk about, maybe book a double appointment or prioritise your list and say early on in the consultation that you've got a list, but this bring your most important thing and main concern first. I'd also sort of write down any symptoms that you're having concisely, keep a diary of symptoms, any questions, any notes. And when I talk about symptoms, you know, you know what, what makes them better? What makes them worse? Do you think anything's causing them? Do they follow a pattern? What have you tried? 
How is it impacting you? And as a doctor, we really want to know what your ideas are, what your concerns are. So are you concerned about cancer? And actually, what do you expect next? Do you expect a referral? Do you expect tests? Do you expect reassurance um, regarding the problem that you've discussed? And if you outline those things, it makes it really facilitates the consultation. And all the other things that I've said for the inpatient appointments, you know, making sure you've got your meds, taking someone in with you um, and making sure you're just honest with the GP. You know, there's no judgment there. We're not there to judge anything you say to us. We don't find things embarrassing um, because actually this is our bread and butter. We deal with it yeah. every day and we'll do everything yeah. we can to make you feel comfortable. But if you do feel worried, if you do feel anxious or embarrassed, please, again, let us know early on in the consultation so we can really help facilitate the consultation for you and how yeah. you're feeling. And I yeah. always say, ask questions because that actually helps you feel empowered because um, I talk about that control yeah. aspect because you do, you feel very vulnerable. But actually, if you ask a few questions, it helps sort of keep the power balance there and you feel like you're in control too. Mm, that's really good advice. And I think what you were saying about making sure you like ask questions and give as much information, detailed information as possible is important because obviously users, GPs can only do as much of the information that we give you that makes sense like everything is based on what we tell you so it's so important for us to have a level of self-awareness as a patient to be able to like clearly get um information over to you guys absolutely and and I, that's the thing like i often have patients say i really wanted to talk about this but you know, if, if it wasn't mentioned early on or in the list early on, it's really difficult then. And often we get saved the biggest, juiciest things will last. They will deal with the sort of discoloured toenail or the cold. And then they'll tell me they've got a yeah. breast lump at the end. And actually, I really want to focus and spend my time on that. Even though the other problems still need to be sorted out, we need to make sure that we're making we're not missing the, the priority um, yeah, consults. I agree with that. So... Um... How would you best advise someone to push if they believe something is wrong with their body, but their doctor isn't being very proactive? Yeah, so this is a question that I often get asked, especially within within the cancer community. And, and you know, if you feel the doctor is not being proactive and you've managed to do all the other things I've said in my last answer in terms of making sure you get your point across your ideas, what you think it is, what your concerns are, what your expectations and that you've given, you know, your diary of symptoms and you've been clear, then go and see another GP and make sure you've got armed with you all the information that I've been talking about. Consider keeping a diary of symptoms so that you've got sort of black and white evidence that this is what's been happening with me. Because often when I ask, you know, questions like, so how many times you get bleeding a month or how many times you get chest pain a month or when was your last period? People people often don't know or can't think back. And I get that you freeze in the moment or you've not really thought about it. But actually, these things are really important because if you've been having bleeding, you know, once in the last month or every day, that's there's a real difference there. Um, And if you feel that you're still not getting anywhere by seeing another GP um, and you've been clear and honest, then, you know, consider changing your doctor, changing your practice and advocate for yourself. You know, I I am absolutely fine for patients advocating for themselves. Um, And actually, as much as my job is to make sure one person hasn't got cancer or isn't having a heart attack, it's also my job to ensure 
that I can reassure you by doing the right tests or asking the right questions that actually your health is okay. So what, if any, lifestyle changes have you made since having bowel cancer? It's a really interesting question. Um, Because before I was diagnosed with bowel cancer, I'd say that I had a healthy lifestyle. You know, I was exercising four or five times a week. I was of normal weight, um, drank alcohol, you know, socially at moderation at the weekends. Um, I would eat fibre, probably not the recommended 30 grams a day, but I ate more fibre than most. And I'd grown up pretty much vegetarian um, in, in our house at home. And, you know, red meat and processed meat wasn't a big part of my diet. However, since cancer, I've still remained active and that's not changed. Um, The alcohol was never, you know, out of um, the ordinary. But actually, I had this real, and I have to describe it as a repulsion to red meat and processed meat. And I don't know if it's psychological, but I'd see bacon or I'd see anything like that. And it would just put fear into me. Because I just didn't, my body didn't want it. I didn't want it. And I would also twitch if my children were eating it. And it's taken a long time for me to relax about this. My And my family will, will say this as well, you know. It's okay for them to enjoy a bacon sandwich once in a while if that's what they choose yeah. to do. Yeah. Um, but I'd say, I, 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 you know, I'm much more vegetarian, pescatarian, fish. Um, will have the occasional red meat. Um, and my fiber, I'm very conscious about fiber and try really hard to get, you know, 30 grams a day, despite, you know, obviously I've still got bowel problems and dysfunction after having surgery. Um, so I do try hard and I think fiber is a really underrated nutrient and actually getting 30 grams of fiber a day is really hard. Yeah. So people have to make an active yeah. effort to, to do this. Um, and it's something that I really speak about because I think it's really important for a variety of reasons, not just bowel cancer. No, like I totally agree with that about the fibre because even when I went through my treatment and stuff, I noticed my digestive system just completely changed and it was so yeah. much slower. So I ended up having to give up meat and I literally like have like a plant-based diet. And it's only because I my digestive system, it wasn't digesting the meat or nothing. So um, I've had to like pile in lots and lots of fibre. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is. It's it's one of those things that does change post-treatment, no matter what treatment, you know, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, yeah. surgery, they can all affect yeah. your guts. Um, so, yeah, it's really important that we look after our guts um, and definitely even for our mental health. So, yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely fibre, fibre, fibre. I love that. When you were diagnosed, had, was there um, anyone else in your family who had had bowel cancer? No, there wasn't. And that was what was interesting. Okay. So no one in my family had had bowel cancer um, and they tested. So I go back to that question I was saying about asking about yeah. the children. Um, yeah. I was tested. The tumour was tested for genetic mutations, which thankfully yeah. I haven't got because that would have implications yeah. for my brother's my children um and so yeah it's it thankfully you know we don't know why my cancer happened unfortunately it's one of those things and we know bowel cancers in the rise on the rise in young people particularly rectal cancers and especially in young women and they're trying to find out why they think it might be something to do with the gut microbiome but you know all that work still being done right now Right, back to the um, topic of lifestyle. I'm going to be off track there, but um, 
with the lifestyle changes, I guess you've made and stuff like that, and what you've seen, and you already had like a very healthy lifestyle prior to cancer anyway. Is it something yeah. that you find is an important topic when you speak to your patients? 100%. You know, lifestyle medicine is huge yeah. right now. It is, yeah. a, it is a medicine in itself. And I would say that it's more powerful than many, many yeah. drugs. If I yeah. could put lifestyle in a prescription, that's what I would do. Because we know, particularly with Western lifestyles, that a lot of it is due to unhealthy lifestyles that a lot of us, uh, you know, potentially leading without sometimes even knowing. And I know with COVID hitting, lifestyle went out of the window for a lot of people. And we're working really hard with patients to get that back. So I would say I would would go into more in-depth conversations about lifestyle with patients who are motivated. So you've got to want to make the change. So me saying that your cholesterol is high and that, you know, we know that, you know, you'd like to lose some weight. I can then signpost you if that's something the patient wants to do or stopping smoking or reducing their alcohol. Um, And actually what I say to patients is it's sometimes the smallest changes that you make that are the most impactful. So, you know, um, reducing your red meat consumption, increasing your yes. fiber, not snacking yeah. between meals, taking that extra walk, and taking the lift, um, sorry, taking the stairs instead of taking yeah. the lift. Um, yeah. And in the NHS now, we have just started having health coaches in the practice, which is brilliant. So some patients who have had cancer, high blood pressure, heart problems, we can signpost these people to health coaches, which will give you a course of sessions to try and help you make healthier lifestyle choices. We've got well-being centres yeah. that we can refer people yeah. to. So it's 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 a huge thing. And if a patient wants to engage with it, I'm all over it. And I'm, you know, I'm with them 100%. And I often do see them several months later with blood tests or face-to-face readings just to sort of say, let's check in. How how has it yeah. gone for you over the last six months? Yeah. Because I think that's really empowering for people to to have that motivation and, and see the difference they can make themselves. That's amazing. And it's so nice to know that there are GPs out there who are actively, you know, speaking with their patients about lifestyle changes. Because I found this being such a big part of my journey myself and a lot of the other ladies who I speak to. So I'm just really happy to hear about the health coaches being involved in NHS and the well-being. Like, I love all of that. I know well-being was such a big word during COVID as well. So, yeah, it's amazing. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's a huge part of our work. And I'd say that, you know, if we had more time in our session, you know, we could spend so much time talking about yeah. lifestyle. But I think yeah. I think that is the bottom line. And people have to be accountable yes. for that. You know, it's not something yes, I definitely. can push someone and into. And patient as well, you know, because you want to be consistent before you see results with lifestyle. It's not as quick as when you take a pill or something. You know, you've got to have the consistency in the patients. And then, yeah, so. Can you tell us a bit about the work you do surrounding raising awareness and why you believe it's important? Yeah, so this this all came about literally the day I was diagnosed. And my husband and I, knowing in the positions we were in as doctor, patient, a specialist in bowel cancer, you know, we knew that we had to somehow turn this negative into a positive and and help others um, if in, in whatever capacity we could. So I've had 
a few awareness sort of passion projects. And one of them was obviously cancer in the young, you know, raising awareness that cancer does not discriminate in terms of age, in terms of yeah. race, uh, because yeah. we know that ethnic minority groups often don't attend their screening um, in the levels that, for example, white people might. We know that they often present later. So trying to tackle that bias and also the gender bias as well. You know, women, there isn't health inequality there. So a lot of awareness around sort of making sure there's health um, equality and breaking down barriers, particularly surrounding taboos and stigma sort of like topics. Those things that people traditionally wouldn't talk about, um, I believe, should be getting airtime. You know, we should be talking breasts, vaginas, poo, all the things that people think are taboo openly so that we can break down stigmas and barriers to people accessing health. Um, and I guess a general health promotion, health education and making sure people are symptom aware, because what I found as a doctor, which was shocking, and I'm not I'm not sure why I should be shocked, was that actually there's a lot of People aren't aware of a lot of the symptoms of different cancers. And if you're not aware of the symptoms, how would you yeah. know when something's wrong with you? And how would you know when to get help? Yeah. Um, and the same goes the other way. Health professionals sometimes disregarding people because they're too young. And I often say, you know, no one's ever too young, too old, too white, too black, too brown, too, yeah. you know, male or female yeah. to have anything actually um, you know, we've always got to consider those possibilities. Um, and, and, and I think that's what I try and bring to the table. And through my own personal blog, I've tried to talk about life after cancer and the highs and the lows. And I've been really open about my mental health, having never previously suffered with mental health issues, about how cancer and the diagnosis of, of something like this can, can impact um, and the journey through it. Oh, that's amazing because that's such a big topic for ladies who finish treatment, you know, they think it's all going to kind of go back to how it was and stuff like that. And sometimes it's a major shock onto how life has changed since going through treatment and that can definitely have a massive effect on the mental health. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think what I'm just trying to empower people with is that knowledge is power. Knowledge that, you know, life after cancer isn't linear necessarily. Yeah. There are lots of yeah. ups and downs knowledge of symptoms of cancer, knowledge of symptoms of any condition. I think it's a more, you know, although I started with bowel cancer, I think I'm in that position as a doctor that I can try and help educate about a variety of things, a lot of which I've been through as a woman and as a cancer patient and, you know, etc. Yeah. Okay, so we're nearing the end of our chat. Have you got any last messages for the audience or...? anything you want to say? Oh, yeah, I think you can probably guess, but my biggest thing is know your normal. And what I mean is know what's normal yeah. to you. Know what your yeah. breasts feel like. Know what your poo looks like. Know what your vulva looks like. Know what yeah. your skin and your moles look like. So if something changes, you know that you need to get help. And please don't be afraid to ask for help or see your GP and advocate for your health because we know, we know that illness and cancer do not discriminate. 100% as a powerful message and how can people find you and please let us know the name of your blog and stuff as well yeah so um i'm on instagram and my handle is at doctors get cancer to so that's doctors the full word get cancer to t-o-o 
Um, or I'm on Twitter. I've just started on Twitter, another social media account, but um, it's Dr. Anisha Patel one. So yeah, I can, I can be found on there and all my sort of information and health promotion and awareness thing is mainly on Instagram at the minute, but um, I will be branching out. Okay, that's amazing. Well, Anisha, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for sharing your journey, for sharing your knowledge. Um, yeah, have a lovely day and thank you to the audience as well for listening. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Charlotte. Thank you so much. This podcast is sponsored by Palmer's the UK's number one cocoa butter brand.